Are the news headlines keeping you away from Greece? Slowly but steadily, things are changing to the benefit of most of the people, though there are very many people still struggling. Coming up today on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll hear how the Greeks are trying to meet their economic challenges and why this just might be the ideal time for you to visit the birthplace of democracy. Also, guides from France share tips for planning summer getaways well beyond Paris. I tell people just to let magic happen because if you have the free time and if you haven't planned yourself so full that you can't enjoy it, the French are partying. And if you'd prefer the wilder side of Europe, ecologist Chris Morgan finds that a lack of development in Romania makes it your best bet for seeing a grizzly bear. Giant carnivores that have been there for thousands of years, and so it's a really quite special feeling when you're in those forests. Get updates on visiting Greece, France, and the wildest places in Europe in the hour ahead. It's Travel with Rick Steves. We get a personal look at what it's like to live behind the news headlines in Greece, plus travel advice for visiting France. That's coming up in just a bit today on Travel with Rick Steves. But first, have you ever ventured into a wilderness setting but felt like something was missing? Ecologist Chris Morgan has been tracking the survival of wildlife that used to thrive undisturbed all around the world. The frequent host of nature documentaries on PBS has been tracking efforts to restore wilderness in his native Britain. Chris recently took a motorcycle trip from Germany into the Alpine forests as far as Italy and Croatia. He did that trip to assess the state of the wilderness in the heart of Europe. He joins us now on Travel with Rick Steves to tell us what he found. Chris, welcome. Great to be here, Rick. Thanks for having me. So, Chris, a typical traveler enjoys the cultural sites. We go to the museums, we go to the cafes, we sit in the squares. You look to Europe for the wild. Tell us about what Europe has to offer in that dimension. Well, I'm an ecologist, so I'm always seeking the wild. And I decided this year in particular, I was going to really start looking for those wild corners of Europe that most people have never even heard of. So... I did a trip that started in Germany in Munich on the back of my motorcycle and went about 2,000 miles through Italy and Austria and a little bit of Croatia and Slovenia on the search for for bears and wolves. And most people are surprised to hear that there are even bears and wolves in Europe. But I've I've been to Europe four months a year for 30 years. I don't (laughs) think I've been, I've even thought about a bear except in a cage. Tell us about the bear population in Europe. Well, you see, I'd be lost in Rome or Venice, whereas, (laughs) you know, you'd know your way around there. But the the forests are more at home. So, you know, it's incredible. In Italy, even, there are two populations of bears, you know, of about 40 each. One up in the Alps and then Uh one up in the, one down further south in the Abruzzos near Rome. So, People are amazed to hear that there are these European grizzly bears just about an hour from Rome. Yeah, on your blog, you marvel at how there's an hour out of Rome you can see bears in the wild. Yeah, it's not easy to see them because there's only 40 or 50 of them in that population there, but they're around. So when I think of Europe and wildlife, I think of rats, pigeons, and squirrels and stuff like that. And when you think of Europe and wildlife, you know what's there. What is there in wildlife, just before we get more into bears around Europe? You know, we have a lot of the same wildlife, and that surprises a lot of people from North America. So I go back with these North American eyes now and feel quite like a tourist in Europe. So it's eye-opening for me to hear that there are still brown bears and still wolves, and there are lynx there as well that we also have in North America. Mm-hmm. Scotland, for example, is full of red deer, which are pretty much the same species as our elk. Mm-hmm. Uh, there are even moose in Scandinavia. I've seen signs for moose in Have Scandinavia, you? but yeah. I've never seen a moose, but I've seen street signs that be careful. I mean, you can you can drive into one right. and, and ruin your day. Yeah, definitely something you don't want to be doing, especially Are, on, a, on a motorcycle. <laughs> what, what do people hunt in Europe? Different countries have different rules when it comes to hunting, but mostly they'll go for the deer species. Mm-hmm. It's illegal to hunt bears in Europe, in most of Europe anyway. Mm-hmm. 
But in Eastern Europe, there are huge numbers of bears. In a place like Romania, there are several thousand of them. So you go into the Carpathians of, of several Transil- thousand bears. Several thousand. This um, is Dracula country. It is, yeah. yeah. It's, these are Transylvanian, Transylvanian grizzlies. Yeah. <laughs> you, you marvel on your blog at what a jewel Romania is, calling it undisturbed wilderness, the ancient forest still intact. Mm-hmm. Romania has got this magical medieval quality, as you know. Mm-hmm. So then when you sort of venture away from the cities and villages and into the wild, you get this extra layer on top, which is these giant carnivores that have been there for thousands of years. And so it's a really quite special feeling when you're in those forests. Ceausescu, before the fall of Ceausescu, made sure that there were going to be a lot of bears in that forest in order for him and his colleagues to hunt them primarily. So they uh, they persist to this day, and they're some of the biggest bears in Europe because they that's, would feed them. That's about the only constructive thing I've heard coming out of Ceausescu is to have good wildlife numbers so he can hunt them. Quite and, then, and that's his heritage. He's gone now, and, they, and the wolves are still there. They are. The wolves and the bears are still there. But unfortunately, now that communism has ended, it's a strange thing to say, unfortunately, right. but right. those forests are coming down very quickly. So the yeah. bears and the wolves are coming down with them. You know, I'm from Britain, so we used to have bears, brown bears, same as our grizzly bears, until about a thousand years ago. We used to have wolves there until 1747. The forests came down when they were building ships for all the uh-huh. wolves over the last few hundred years. And so with them came these big carnivores that need the forests. And But there are places in Europe, I mean, even in Scotland, they've got this big rewilding effort underway now where they are trying to make Scotland wild enough through the forests to bring back carnivores. Chris Morgan's joining us on Travel with Rick Steves for a look at how wild places are faring in Europe. You may recognize his voice from the episodes of Nature that he's narrated for PBS. Chris also produced a three-hour documentary special for public television called Bears of the Last Frontier. His latest film looks at threats to bear survival on four continents. It's called Bear Track and should be screening at film festivals this year. On his Facebook page, Chris has posted videos about mountain lions, cougars, and grizzlies. You can find him there at Chris Morgan Wildlife. Chris, getting back to Scotland, I've read that there's a multi-millionaire named Paul Lister. He's famous in Britain for wanting to restore his private wilderness reserve up in the highlands and make it what it was like before the Romans invaded Britain. If you did that, wouldn't that require reintroducing predatory wildlife in order to restore the balance of nature? It's, it's, a, it's a long journey, but someone like Paul has this vision to bring back the forests, these ancient Caledonian forests of Scotland that have disappeared. He's planted a million trees, Scots pine trees, over this last 10 years, and he's really trying to promote as the best way for the rural Scottish economies to to really thrive by bringing people in to see these wild animals, wolves to begin with, and who knows, might end up with bears years from now. Part of the value for having wolves is to keep the deer population in check? Yeah, there are half a million red deer in Scotland and no carnivores to keep them in check. Paul Lister's not a favorite guy among the deer. <laughs> They're not big the, Paul fans. No. The, the deer have it have it have it easy because there's no, they no do. predators for there's them. There's no looking over their shoulder at this point. No. Consequently, you got too many deer up in Scotland. That's right, half a million of them. Consequently, the forests don't come back easily because they're eating them all. Let's talk about bear in Europe. And it sounds like Croatia is kind of like uh, the bear. Well, you even talk about a, a bear sanctuary in a Croatian town. Yeah, it's it's an amazing place. You don't think of Croatia and bears in the same sentence, do you? But there are around a thousand bears in Croatia. And so once I'd left Italy looking for bears there, I, I went across the Adriatic Sea, put my motorbike on the ferry there and crossed on that overnight crossing and found myself in a completely different world. And it was just magic. And the thing that was most surprising to me was that there are bears in these national parks right on the coast. So you can be on the beach one minute sipping a pina colada 
jump on your motorcycle or car or hike and an hour later be in beautiful pine forest where the bears live. And I was lucky enough on this one trip, I, I hiked for miles this one day, found bear sign, found scout on the ground and claw marks on trees, didn't find a bear. And then on my ride back down this gravel road on the bike, saw three seconds of a big brown rear end disappearing over the rocks in front of me. You've got a was, video clip of that on your blog, don't you? Yeah, it was the, It was just after, after the it. fact. I mean, it was kind of funny. <laughs> I thought, oops, you should have been rolling about two seconds earlier, exactly. but it's a it's a fleeting thing when there's just a handful of bear. That's right. He didn't but, want to hang around. Well, you got some evidence of the bears. What do you look for when you're bear hunting? I mean, how do you know you're close to a bear? Yeah, that's a really good question because like, even in North America, you could put these skills to, to the test, you know, claw marks and bite marks on trees, scat on the ground, you know, which are giant piles of scat that larger than any other animal bear lays. Droppings. Bear droppings. Bear yeah. pies. Yeah, bear pies <laughs> full of berries, but don't taste them. And uh, uh, what else can you look for? Tracks, of course, they have five yeah. toes, Sasquatch-like okay. tracks, you know, so yeah. various things that you can look for and uh, keeps it interesting to walk in the woods. You were um, traveling around uh, Europe enjoying the wildlife, but you're on a motorcycle, which is kind of a wild ride looking for the wildlife. Tell us about motorcycle traveling in Europe. You know, it's phenomenal. I, I hadn't done much motorcycling in Europe. I've done it all over North America, but not much in Europe before. And the roads are just exquisite, aren't they? I mean, you get onto those mm. mountain pass roads and the switchbacks. and I had not thought. I know the Germans just love their well-engineered autobahns, and they'll take their fancy cars and, you know, enjoy the alpine engineering. But on a motorcycle, it's probably just even more exciting. Oh, super fun. And and subsequently, there are just thousands of bikes on the road on any given day in the Alps, yeah. for example. Yeah. So that was a surprise to me because I'm used to empty roads of Alaska, but I had lots of company on the road in, in the Italian Alps. Well, speaking of lots of company, you went to the Motorrad. That would be the, the motorcycle festival, Motorrad Days. 40,000 bikers gathering together in Germany. Yeah, and a lot of beer consumed. <laughs> what was, are these guys like, uh, you know, your Harley drivers? Or are they uh, just... Uh, Sunday afternoon joy riders, or what's the Well, you know, all walks of life go there. There's 40,000 motorcyclists, and most of them are BMW fanatics, but a lot of them are not. So they all just show up for a a good beer tent and and a shot of Jägermeister and bring their tents and stay in the local little town of uh, Garmisch-Partenkirchen there in the German Alps. That's a small town that must have been overwhelmed by the the motorcyclists. Yeah, really really comes alive at that time of year, yeah. And they just take over all these fields around the village. I see that in in my travels. It's just whether it's um, vintage cars or motorcycles, you know, there's hobbyists in Germany love to be out on the road. Yeah, it's almost a pastime there, isn't it? You know, where people just love to be out driving, I think. The scenery really lends itself to it. I mean, I've spent some time in dramatic places around the world, but the Alps, there's just something about them, isn't there? You know, they're so so jagged, and they evoke these incredible feelings when you're just riding or driving through the Alps or hiking through them. And I love the way that the villages are interspersed in the fields, and you can be in the highest plateaus of the highest mountains and feel like you're in the middle of nowhere, and then you come across a refugio with a a decent salami and, and mm. hunk of bread and cheese and a, and a, and a craft beer. Well, I just you love sound it. like uh, Northern Italy here, the, the Dolomites. Yes. This, what is it, Stelvio Pass? The Stelvio Pass, yeah. I don't remember how many switchbacks there That's are. That's one of the most, inc- I've driven it, and it's just one of the most incredible feelings of accomplishment when you get up there. What was it like on a motorcycle? Oh, it's, it's pretty hair-raising because there's a lot of people on that road. And I really didn't know where I was going. I made it up as I went along. It was kind of, I landed in Germany did the BMW festival and then left there on this bike and thought, I'm going to go and find some bears. I had a vague idea of where I was going, but I looked at that pass and thought, that's where I'm going to start. So rode up over this mountain. There must be 50 switchbacks, I would yeah. think, at least yeah. going up to the top of that pass. And so it just, the landscape just gets more and more dramatic as you go. There is a lot of Europe that 90% of the people never even get close to. 
I think you're right. And what really struck me, and I was really moved by it actually, as a European visiting my, my once home continent again, is just the potential for rewilding there. There are a lot of wild spaces left, and there's a lot of potential to make those spaces grow even more. And with them come the animals, like the bears and the wolves. And I, I think those wild spaces are good for all of us. Is there hope that Europe would get serious about uh, rewilding? Yes. I think that we're on the brink of them getting really serious about it, with things like happening at Allerdale in Scotland and you know, bears starting to come back. There are 700 wolves in Germany now. And there are hundreds of wolves in Italy as well. And, and that wasn't the case even 20 or 30 years ago. So the signs are there that people are taking rewilding seriously. And the seriously. wolves are not just considered farm pests and, and hunted down by vigilante crews of farmers because they don't want them messing with their domestic animals? That definitely happens. Definitely happens. Yeah. But, uh, you know, wolves will bounce back if you give them half an inch. You know, right. like you can give nature yeah. a chance and she'll, uh, and she'll really try her best to bounce back. Fantastic. And, and Chris Morgan, The Wild Side of Europe. Thanks so much. Thanks, Rick. You'll find more about Chris Morgan and his explorations into the remote places of the planet at his website, wildlifemedia.org. Up next on Travel with Rick Steves, we find out how people in Greece are weathering their economic difficulties and what effect all this may have on the tourist experience there. And later, we'll get expert advice for planning a summer vacation in France. We're at 877-333-RICK. Greece is home to one of the most enduring civilizations on Earth. But its recent economic challenges, compounded by the influx of refugees fleeing Syria on their way into Europe, have been dominating the news from Europe these days. The images you see on TV don't often reflect what everyday life is actually like for the average Greek citizen and how they're managing their country's challenges. And this news coverage also tends to make people who have long dreamed of seeing the remarkable Acropolis, Delphi and Meteora, places like that, think twice about their travel plans. To help us better understand Greece's challenges from a personal perspective, we're joined right now on Travel with Rick Steves by Greek tourism specialists Ioana Papakosta from Patras, Anastasia Gaitanou from Thessaloniki, and David Willett. David used to write the Lonely Planet guidebooks to Greece, and he's a former resident of Nathplio in the Peloponnese. They're here to help us separate the myth from the reality of today's Greece. Anastasia, David, Ioana, thanks for being here. Hi, Rick. Good to be here. It's been a tough couple years for Greece. Joanna, what is the latest with the economy for the Greek people? Well, we're trying very hard to get over difficulties. And what I can say is that definitely the past years, they unveiled a very serious problem that was covered for decades. And we need to make reforms. And that should have been done many years ago. Slowly but steadily, things are changing and to the benefit of most of the people, though there are very many people still struggling. The reality, uh, Anastasia, is Greece has a, a huge debt. And as uh, Ioana was talking about, it could have been uncovered a long time ago, the, the problems in the economy. Maybe that's a lesson for other countries. And, and now there is an awareness of this. What is it like from a Greek point of view? Is, is it demoralizing or is there a light at the end of the tunnel? Well, we do have a joke in Greece. We say, finally, we do see light at the end of the tunnel. And then somebody turns around and tells you, well, that's the train coming. Oh, boy. So there are two ways of looking at things always, but we Greeks are optimistic. Definitely, we have lots of things to do, lots of steps to take, lots of reforms that mm -hmm. have not been done yet. But we still would like to hope that, yes, there is a light at the end of the tunnel and it's not the train coming. <laughs> yes, I hope so, too. You know, David, I know you're a big lover of Greece and you've spent... Uh, 
decades traveling in Greece. From your point of view, what is the root of the problem? It seems to me like there's a culture of corruption and tax avoidance is sort of like a national pastime. You're from Australia, although you know Greece as well as I think most Greeks do. What would your diagnosis be? What's the root and, and what might the solution be? I think the root of the problem was having access to cheap EU funds and then squandering them on buying political patronage. That's the root of the problem. The problem now is the huge debt that's resulted. The problem has been compounded by a lack of faith in Greece from the traditional visitors. So tourism, which is Greece's heavy industry, took a bad hit for about five years in a row. And it's great that people are returning to Greece. And I think that uh, when they get there, they would never guess that Greeks have so many problems because they're very good at covering them up. Plus, tourists go to touristy places, and touristy places have tourism as boosting their economy, I have a sense. You go to a cute town on, on an island, and it's got lots of tourists bringing in money. Does that kind of cloud the assessment of a tourist of what is the, the general story in Greece? Certainly. If you go to places like Mykonos, Santorini, Rhodes, Naxos, you would never know that there was any problem at all because everything's going full steam ahead. Is there an issue of uh, just a work ethic because in the Mediterranean, people love to uh, enjoy life for the moment. And I think that's a beautiful thing. David, what do you think? I think it's easier for me to answer this question because a lot of Greeks feel quite embarrassed to say what I'm about to say, which is that there's a massive misperception about the lazy Greek. Right, because maybe I'm showing that in my mm, question. they 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 have a lazy public service, and they're famously so. But the vast majority of Greeks work in small business, and they are extremely hardworking. Mm-hmm. Really, I find that Greeks are some of the hardest-working people I know. Now, that when, might come as a shock to you, so but that I, is reality. Because when I think of the people that I, I meet, they are industrious, they are hardworking, but you do have that protected public service sector of the economy. Is that what you're saying? That's, that is, that's the problem part. Well, it started out, of course, in the 30s, because back then every new government would fire the entire public sector and hire their own people. And that would happen over and over again. Oh, so this is a heritage of that yes, so protection of that workers. law was to protect these people and their jobs. But of course, if you know that you will not be fired, then you know that even if you go to work and do nothing, still you get paid. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're talking about what's going on in Greece for travelers. We've got three great Greek guides with us, Anastasia Gaitanu, Ioana Papakosta, and David Willett. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Heath's calling in from Amarillo in Texas. Keith, have you been in Greece, and uh, what are your thoughts on, on the, the news lately about Greece's economy? Hi, Rick. Well, it's been about 10 years since I've been to Greece. And about 10 years ago, I had the opportunity to study abroad. And got to travel all throughout and just loved it. And I've really wanted to go back sometime here in the near future. But with just everything that's been going on, I've been somewhat hesitant to, to want to make a trip or to plan it. And so... Uh, I've just been curious to sit here, you know, all these thousands of miles away and watch what's going on, but it's hard to know unless your feet are on the ground. Um, yeah. So that's why I was curious kind of what you, you guys thought about that. So, Heath, you're, when you say with everything going on, uh, exactly what are you thinking about? Because it's understandable that somebody who's dreaming about Greece and hasn't been there or hasn't been there for a long time might be wondering if this is a good time to go. So, quote, with everything going on, what exactly is that? Just with the economy and just with just something as simple as just safety. I know that right. sometimes uh, there's been some safety concerns. Yeah. Well, um, let's, let's talk about that with our guides. Uh, so how does the economy actually impact a, a traveler? All of you take groups around. Anastasia, when you take groups around Greece, 
How has the, the economic struggles of Greece impacted their vacation? Not at all. Absolutely nothing. <laughs> you know, I was there just a couple of months ago, and uh, I would agree with that. I mean, I've been going to Greece for 20 or 30 years, and you know there's an economic struggle, but as a tourist, you just meet happy Greeks scrambling to bring you great food and, and Or if I may say vacation. so, it has impacted them in a very positive way because prices are down. Joanna. And another thing, the Greeks are very proud people. Mm-hmm. They would never let you see that they are suffering mm-hmm. financially. Oh. So that doesn't, it has never influenced any of our groups. Mm-hmm. Maybe they will hear about uh, young couples mm-hmm. who have lost their jobs and they had to move in with their parents again. Mm-hmm. But uh, that was never a problem. Heath, thanks for your call. Thanks a lot, Rick. I appreciate it. You bet. Jill's calling from Alabama. Jill, thanks for your call. Hi. Thank you for taking my call. (laughs) My travel experience in the past has been that economies that are suffering are always happy to accept your tourist dollars. And (laughs) so that's one reason that we have chosen Greece to visit this summer. I don't have an extended period of time to spend, though, and... I wanted to go to some of the places where Apostle Paul visited and wrote letters to, and specifically the northeastern two cities, Philippi and Thessalonica. But I was concerned about the refugee crisis, and is it worse in the northeast than, say, Athens and the lower part of Greece? Okay, thanks for your questions. And just to go through those one at a time, first of all, you mentioned uh, that, you know, if if a country is having tough times economically, it's not a bad time to go, but a good time to go because people are happy to get your money. And the flip side of that also is your money is helping people who can really use it. I mean, I really like to go to countries that are struggling for reasons beyond their control because all these small businesses really rely on tourism. and, And it's a beautiful thing to inject a little energy into their economy. Uh, we have Anastasia Gaetano, who is from Thessaloniki. Uh, Anastasia, Jill is talking about sites relating to the Apostle Paul and Thessaloniki. Uh, what would you advise? Well, there are many sites that Paul visited, and uh, he visited them mainly during his second journey that was the first one in Europe. So he started in Philippi and Neapolis, that is called Kavala today, but it's biblical Neapolis, that's in the northeast of Greece, and then he continued to Thessaloniki or Thessalonica, it's the same. Veria or Berea, that's more to the west then. And then he continued traveling down to the south to Athens and Corinth. You know, when we study the Bible, we know Philippians, Thessalonians, Corinthians, all of these are letters from Paul to the people of those cities? To these Christian communities and churches that he established in those places, and especially in Corinth, he spent 18 months. It was one of his favorite places. So there's plenty to see if you're looking for the footsteps of Paul. And Jill was curious about the impact of refugees. We see in the news here in the United States, uh, refugees, uh, desperate people washing up on the on the shore of islands in the Greek Sea. And understandably, travelers are wondering, how will that impact my trip? From your experience, you're, you live there, you take groups around there. Well, we've gone through the, the last year of, of this refugee crisis. What's the actual impact on tourists visiting Greece? Well, you will never see refugees in any of those places, but not just in the, pla- at the places that Apostle Paul visited, but any of the places that usually tourists go to. Because the refugees are not interested in culture, they're interested in getting through Greece to other countries of Central or Northern Europe. So you do see refugees if you visit the island of Lesbos, because mm-hmm. that's very close to the Turkish coast, that's the reason. Right. And from there, they're brought with ships to Athens, mm-hmm. and then again in Athens you don't really see them because there are two parallel worlds then existing together, 
And usually they're welcomed. I will use that word because even if the facilities are not the best, that's what we're trying to do, to welcome these people in camps, let's call them shelters, mm-hmm. better for refugees. And from there, they try by any means, train buses usually to get to the border and then onto Europe. So, so you don't really meet them. That's the uh, the big point is the refugees are, are looking to go to Germany or Scandinavia or England and they're going through Greece and... Uh, they're generally not going to be where the tourists go. Joanna, what is your take on refugees and the impact on travelers? Yes, I totally agree with Anastasia because mm. uh, they're not interested in the parts that most of the people are visiting. But what if you did run into a, a group of refugees? It's if At worst, it's an inconvenience. I've never heard it to be a, a, a Never a problem. Risk. It's only because we are not feeling comfortable looking at these people going through hard times, Rick. And this is for me, what we should get over. Maybe that's the point, because I am really struck by how many Americans are nervous about traveling with all these refugees, and they they think it's a safety issue, but I think you just explained to me what it is. It's awkward to see refugees when you're on vacation. And I would say, if you're going to Hawaii or if you're going to the Greek islands, the refugee plight is the same. And if you're going to ignore it, it's no different by ignoring it in Hawaii or ignoring it on Mykonos. Exactly. And it's of no danger. At worst, it's an inconvenience. And, hey, that's just a little bit of reality. I would think it's a blessing to be able to get closer to that situation and come home with a, a better empathy And for it, it brings our life in a different perspective. We should appreciate the things we have, seeing how people are struggling in their life yeah. in their country. Jill, does that give you some uh, insight into your questions? Very good. Very good. That makes a lot of sense. All right. So, Excellent answer. Thank you very much. We look forward to being there this summer. And thanks for your call, Jill. Thank you. Our guests, David Willett, Joanna Papacosta, and Anastasia Gaitanu are specialists in introducing visitors to the sights and vibrant history of Greece. They're joining us right now on Travel with Rick Steves for a personal look at how Greece is dealing with its biggest issues today. Our phone number is 877-333-7425, and Tom is calling from Fairfield in California. Tom, are you thinking about traveling to Athens or Greece? Oh, yes, I am. Uh, My wife and I are going to be in uh, Athens in August of this year, and uh, we're going to be there for a few days and then take a cruise to the Adriatic and end up in uh, Istanbul. But my question is, just like your last previous caller's and indicated their concern for safety and things. I was wondering uh, about all the basic tourist sites in Athens itself, you know, the Acropolis and the surrounding areas. Are they uh, still fairly safe and very easy to uh, work with in there? So are you talking about fairly safe in light of the demonstrations that can be violent that we see on the news in Athens? Yes. Yeah, because it is quite striking to look uh, on the TV and see uh, you know, people gathering and cars burning or police out and so on in uh, in uh, Syntagma Square in Athens. David Willett, what would your take be for an American wondering how is this going to impact my travel planning? I think it's very easy to be misled by what you see on TV. Greeks are very emotional people. And when they're happy, you know they're happy. When they're angry, you know they're angry. The scenes you see on TV are not directed against other people. They are objecting to the state and the decisions they're making. Mm-hmm. You will never, ever feel even remotely threatened hmm. by demonstrators. They're not angry with tourists. And the they, opposite. And they go to the square right in front of the parliament building yes. to make their statement. And that's the only place you'll find them. 
So if you want to see them, you have to go there. They don't come and find you. <laughs> and that's been the history. Mm. I mean, that is not, that's just the way mm. it is. If there's an anarchist and they want to get on the news, they'll get on their little scooter and go down to Syntagma Square and um, make some noise. Or, 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 and that does get on the news. And here in the United States, it, it seems like Greece is burning. Yes. Anastasia. I also add to that that whenever there is a big demonstration or a protest, it has always, by law, it has to be announced a week before. So you always know when there is going to be one. So if you're at a hotel, just ask the reception, is there any demonstration going on? I've even had clients, tour members, who went near Sindagma Square to see what exactly was going on. And they came back and they said it was an experience for them because it wasn't... So it is reality travel. You're not going to find it at Disneyland, <laughs> but you can find it on Sintagma Square. And if you want to avoid it, just don't go to Sintagma Square tomorrow. Exactly. Tom, does that help? Okay. That's great. Yeah. Thank you very much for the... Uh, advice. I appreciate it, and thanks for taking my call. I would say the thing you need to worry about is the heat in August. That's <laughs> what I would be concerned about, and you can still do it fine, but uh, be ready to head for, the, head for the islands or head for the hills. Okay. All right. Thank you again. Th- thanks for your call. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking about what's going on in Greece. Our guides are Anastasia Gaitanu, Ioana Papakosta, and David Willett. Joanna, Anastasia, David, let's just finish with something a little more upbeat. Uh, the Greeks are really good at embracing life in good times and in bad. Anastasia, what's a way that the Greeks would be sure to, to keep a, a positive look at things? How do Greeks party? Well, one of the main things or positive things that happened during the recession is that we stopped really caring that much about ourselves. And we started caring again about our family, our friends more, not just people we know, but everybody who's not just in need, but just really everybody started to feel again as part of a whole. Bringing the community and together. Exactly, bringing the community together. And I think that was the most positive thing. And we do celebrate that by just walking around, meeting people, talking to people. And we've got also the so-called coffee culture in Greece. If you want to meet somebody, meet a friend, you just go out for a coffee. You don't usually invite them to your place. Right. I mean, you can do that. And we go there and we sit hours with a cup of coffee, just watching who's passing by, stopping people, talking to them, talking about everything. Enjoying the parade of life. Exactly. And David Willett, uh, your advice as a former guidebook writer for Lonely Planet for Greece, uh, what's a tip so Americans can see Greeks uh, enjoying life, even in economic hard times? I guess to uh, see Greeks enjoying themselves in these times, you need to be somewhere where there's something to celebrate because there are certainly parts of Greece where people are less than totally happy. But the areas which are buoyed by tourism, you will see Greeks who still have enough money to go and eat with friends, share drinks with friends, because for Greeks, food and wine are things that you share with your friends, and that's always my lasting memories of Greece, is time spent with friends. And a tourist is wide open for that. I think if you are open to them, they're very open to you. Good idea. Joanna, what's your final thought on how an American can enjoy the Greeks enjoying life? In Interact with bad? people and see how open and how friendly to foreigners the Greeks are, even in hard times. They're very willing to just have an, even an eye contact if they cannot talk. Gestures are into our culture so much. And I love that, good eye contact. Just... And I've noticed that if you get eye contact, there's a connection, and pretty soon you're having a conversation And I find Greeks can speak enough English, uh, well-educated and young Greeks, especially Greeks in tourism. And uh, the trick for you is to get out of the hotel and get out onto the square, have a cup of coffee, buy somebody a drink, and connect with the Greeks. That's a main idea. Ioana, Anastasia, David, thanks very much for joining us. Thank Thank you, Rick. Thank you.
Up next on Travel with Rick Steves, we'll help you plan a summer vacation in France. We've imported two of the country's best tour guides to take your calls at 877-333-RIC. The most popular country to visit in the entire world is France. And while we often talk about the attractions of Paris here on Travel with Rick Steves, today we've invited our tour guides, Patrick Vidal and Julie Sanvo, to take your calls at 877-333-7425. They're here to help you plan a getaway to explore any corner of France. Julie and Patrick, it's nice to have you back. You're welcome. Nice to be here. Bonjour. Bonjour. Mm -hmm. Sue's on the line from Brighton, Michigan, to get us started. Sue, thanks for calling. Do you need some help on planning your trip to France? Yes, I do. Uh, My husband Jim and I are planning uh, to be in France this summer, and we were looking at the Massif Central region. We kind of like going to places where it's kind of a little bit more out of the beaten path, and we're just wondering what you might be able to tell us, what might be a central location where we can stay to explore the region, or two locations. I think we've got about eight nights, and uh, we will have a car. So where to stay, and we'd kind of like a cross between some scenic drives, some uh, day hikes, and a lot of cultural activities and maybe villages or things like that to go see and do. Okay, so now, so first of all, the Massif Central. What, what does that mean, Patrick? Well, that means what it is, the Central Massif. Which the Massif <laughs> at the central, the central of France. The guy who gave it name to it was very imaginative. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> so a massive land. It's it's just the wide open space. Massive, of massive, the well, big, big mountain it's range. It's mountain range. The mountain it's range. It's a mountain. It's a range. mountain yeah. range, but an older volcanic mountain range, kind of comparable to the Ozarks. Oh, okay. And uh, Julie, how would you describe it from a travel? Point well, of view? I spent four days there hiking one time, and camping, and hiking, and bivouacking, and so it's just beautiful countryside. It's almost Swiss-like with the rolling hills and the the green pastures and the cows. And I think hiking is the best thing to and do. And where there. is this compared to Marseille and Paris? It's right in the center of France, so, so south of Paris and south of Paris, north, between north Paris of, and Marseille. Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah. so great hiking. Great hiking. And Patrick, what would you do if you were going to take us around for a couple of days? Eat cheese. Eat cheese. Oh, yeah, that's cheese country. Cheese. That's cheese country. A lot of, lot of green land and a lot of cheese. A lot so, of dairy well, farms. Thinking of, uh, of what uh, Sue was asking about, I would base into, I would do the, the massive central, central part from Clermont-Ferrand or something like that. With all the, you can visit all the mountains called the Puy, P-U-Y, mm-hmm. which are the former volcanoes places, okay. which have got the round place at the top and some lake in it. And then maybe, uh, to my choice, I would go further south, like the Lozère or... Sévrac le Château, plenty of places down there where you're really hiking there would be marvelous. And you've got the Gorge du Town, some very narrow valleys with rivers down there, which are very, very impressive. So this is a gorge? Gorge du Tarn, T-A-R-N. So the Tarn Gorge. The area around there, around the south, is, is part of the Massif Central. It's called Les Cévennes, C-E-V-E-N-E-S, Cévennes, Les Cévennes. And it's a kind of a crisscross between the uh, southern culture and more mountain culture. And it's a very, very interesting area. So these are places where there's very few American tourists, I think, compared to the, Oof, the no. where everybody yeah, no, knows. No, no American tourists. No American tourists there. No. And so you'll have a car, and, and I hope you like cheese. Do you like cheese? Absolutely, absolutely. Oh. <laughs> One of the highlights for me is a cheese course on the menus. I choose a restaurant oh, yeah. that's got a cheese oh, yeah. <laughs> course. Thanks for your call, Sue. Good luck. Let us know how it goes. Thank you very much. Enjoy thanks. the fromage. Mm-hmm. Okay. Dave's calling from Avon in Indiana. Dave, thanks for your call. Hi, thank you. Yeah, do you have a comment or a question for Julie or Patrick? I do. I'm taking my family to France as part of a longer European vacation this year. And in addition to going to Paris, one of the cities I was contemplating was Dijon. So I've been 
taken a wine tour with a local guide in Burgundy a couple years ago, and she was based in Dijon. She waxed poetic about the beauty of Dijon and how nobody goes there and it's this wonderful place. But then I was sort of looking around online. I couldn't find too much information about it. So I was curious as to what your view of Dijon was and how it might compare versus, say, Lyon. Well, we have Julie Sanvo here, who is an American who's made her home in Burgundy. Julie, first of all, uh, you know, Lyon is famous, and Lyon is, is really worth visiting. I don't know much about Dijon, uh, nor does Dave. How, how would you describe Dijon? Well, Dijon, Dijon? is um, it's a Burgundian town. It's actually developed quite a bit in the last few years. My daughter just moved there this year, so I'm just getting to know Dijon. But on the way down there from Paris, I have to tell you about Guédelon the project where they're building the 13th century castle. And if you're taking a car down to Dijon, it's right on the way. You could also stop in Bone, which is close to Dijon as well. So Guédelon is the project where they're building a 13th century castle as if it was the 13th century. Now you worked there, right? I worked there as a local guide and for a while. And how do you spell Guédelon? G-U-E-D-E-L-O-N. This is a unique thing. They're actually building with medieval techniques a castle, just to show how it can be done, to prove... What, what is the Building mission Building it of by Dijon? hand. Yeah, yeah. W- w- tell us about that whole project. It's about a 25-year project. They're about halfway through. They're um, learning. It's a, an experiment, an open-air experiment, basically, on how to build a castle in the 13th century because they didn't have a whole lot written about how to do that. And so the best way to do something is to experience it and try it. So they're building a castle. And at first they had no idea what they were doing, and now they've become the experts on how castles probably were built in the 13th century. So it's a fascinating, especially I don't know what age your children are, but it's a great stop on the way to Dijon. And then uh, Dijon itself, Patrick might know a little bit more about the history. Yeah, there's quite a few places to visit in Dijon. There's the Palace of the Dukes, which is very nice. There's an old quarter. There's a very nice fine art museum. And there's a lot of green parks in Dijon as well, which is very, very nice. There's a canal running through Dijon with boats running on the canal. You could rent a boat for a couple of hours or a day or so. And right outside of Dijon, you've got very, very nice countryside with, uh, with the beginning of the cost of the of the wines. Before you get to the wine, yeah. do, do they have mustard in Dijon? They do have mustard in Dijon, but I'm, I'm sorry I'm going to disappoint you, but uh, <laughs> they don't grow any mustard seeds in France at all. It's all coming from Canada. Patrick, by the way, I, I love uh, Lyon, and uh, you know Lyon and you know Dijon, two I'll, great towns yeah. in that. If somebody had two days, you have to choose one or the other. You know, if I, if I was comparing them, I mean, uh, Lyon is much bigger, much much bigger town. If you don't want to bother with driving, go to Lyon. And you can easily spend two days in Lyon and walk around and, and visit the place. And if you don't mind renting a car and driving a bit around, go to Dijon. Spend half a day in Dijon and then drive around. And you were going to talk about wineries nearby? Yeah, because there's a lot Burgundy. of wineries. We got, we're close to Bonn. We're close to all the uh, La Côte d'Or, which is the place where they do all those wines, big names of the wines. The best wines. And when you visit a winery in Burgundy, do you just look for degustation signs or do you have to make an appointment? Or what's your strategy for visiting a winery? A lot of places where you're going to find a sign, degustation. Degustation means wine tasting. Tasting. tasting so when yeah. you see degustation, yeah. come on in and taste the wine and the maybe buy a bottle. The easiest way to do it, not necessarily the more traditional, but the easiest way is to look for bigger places because they're more organized for it and they will have somebody waiting for you and doing the, the visit. If you want to visit a small place with some winemakers, very often you will have to have an appointment and, okay. and make it easier for them. But if you have a car, Dijon's a great base yeah. and you can see the great city and you can also get out into the countryside. Explore a little bit more. Dave, does that help you out okay? Yeah, helps me out a lot. Thank you very much. Hey, have a good time. Thanks for your call. Thanks. We've enlisted the expertise of tour guides Julie Sanvo and Patrick Vidal to take your calls at 877-333-7425 as you get ready for a great trip to France. By the way, Julie was raised in Kansas, 
She met her future French husband in California, and they moved back to his hometown in rural Burgundy. Patrick is a frequent guest here on Travel with Rick Steves. He's lived all over France, and his family now makes their home in Brittany. That's the peninsula in the northwest that retains the historic Celtic identity that was found across much of that part of Europe before the Romans took over. Julie and Patrick will also be back with us in July to help us celebrate Bastille Day. And speaking of Kansas, Kathy's on the line from Overland Park in Kansas to tell us about a music festival she and her husband enjoyed when they were in France. Kathy, bonjour. Thank you for making my call. My husband's here also, Mark. We were just traveling around by car in France. We just happened into Avignon, and it was very crowded. We couldn't find a place to stay, so we had to go outside the walls. And then we find out there's this wonderful music festival on. We were very lucky to find a couple of tickets to various things. We don't speak great French, so we were looking for musical programs, dance, that kind of thing. So we were wondering, are there other musical festivals that we can find driving around by car, not covering too much territory, but kind of in a fairly close proximity? Yeah, well, before we get to that, I'd like to just talk to you a little bit about the festival you enjoyed in Avignon, because Avignon's a great city. A lot of people go there in Provence in the south of France, and uh, you hit it during its beloved musical festival. What was that like? Was it intimate small performances? Were they open air? Was it traditional music? What was the vibe at the festival for you as an American who just accidentally dropped in? This is the husband, Mark. It was probably three of the best days Mm -hmm. we've spent in our life. In the Central Square area, there were street performers. You could wander around and see a little bit of everything. There were musical performances, dance performances. Surprisingly, we even saw a comedy routine in English with virtually everyone in the audience except us not understanding a single (laughs) comedian told. And at one point, he asked everyone, why are you here? (laughs) The performances, there were some major ones with very large venues with very large crowds, and others were small. There was a a German dance troupe that was absolutely bizarre. Oh, I remember that. Uh, It it was just a panoply of every possible thing. I guess Edinburgh Festival must be the premier one in Europe, but uh, this was more manageable with wonderful variety and, and lots of access. Wow. Mark, you mentioned Edinburgh, and I had just wrote that down in my notes because what Kathy and you were describing sounds like the fun I had at the Edinburgh Festival, but the great thing about the Avignon Festival is it's in this beautiful town. Avignon is so pedestrian-friendly, and it's just warm stone and wonderful lanes and inviting squares. That sounds like a wonderful festival. Patrick and Julie, around France, are there any other festivals like this that people might want to know about? Back to the Avignon Festival, that's one of the largest, originally it's a theater festival. And that's one of the largest ones in, in Europe. I mean, it's a, it's a huge one. It's one of the most renowned festivals around the place. It's an amazing one. So I'm not surprised they found so much around it. Patrick, when does the festival go every year? It normally starts around the second week of July, around the 7th or 10th of July, something like that. Ah, so Bastille Day time. Yeah, yeah almost, yeah. Uh, I mean, that's the thing in France. You, you go in the summer and you've got festival absolutely everywhere. everywhere. <laughs> that's what I wanted to say. It's nice to be in France and just, just go with that. I tell people just to let magic happen because it happens everywhere. Everywhere you turn, there's something that happens. If you have the free time and if you haven't planned yourself so full that you can't enjoy it, the French are partying. 
Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and But it is conceivable that the tourist who's not on the ball could be in their hotel room watching True. TV. And You've you got to know what's happening. There is a store, the FNAC store in any city that has the list if you want to go in somewhere and see what's going on around hmm. or check it out online or... Yeah, but they're in the summertime, like Patrick says. So if it's July and August, I there's something going on. Don't be in your hotel. I didn't know that, Julie, but the FNAC, F-N-A-C, is the big department store. That's where you buy tickets, too. And if you step in there, you can see what's happening, and they've got tickets also. Right. That's a good tip. Kathy and Mark, thanks so much for inspiring us to go to France and enjoy a music festival. Oh, thank you so much. Okay, take care. Bon voyage. Bon voyage. Dave's on the line in Kennewick, Washington. Dave, thanks for your call. Well, thank you. My question relates to uh, speaking French. Uh, my wife and I had a couple from Norway. will be in Paris, and uh, I still have a certain amount of trepidation in going there and not speaking French. Well, you know, you, you can't travel and speak every language of the places where you go, so uh, you will bump into a country where you don't speak the language. And going to Paris nowadays is not, it's not an issue anymore not to speak the language. There's a lot of people speaking enough to understand you and to answer your questions and, uh, and to get you around. You know, France is one place where I would say there's 20 words that are, like, required mm-hmm. just so you're not considered crude and rude. Julie, you have a lot of friends that come to France that don't speak uh, French. Right, and in Paris, it's not a problem. When you go to the countryside, it's not a problem. It's just much more of a challenge, and it's a fun experience, and that's how you, you have these interchanges with people that are so funny, and that's where you get your stories from. So the French love that we come and we try. The whole point is don't be shy and not try. And there's a lot of words that we don't even realize that are French-based, so you will recognize a lot more words if you really just relax and let it happen, but know those few necessary words. And it is interesting that in the big city, the people are more likely to speak English, but in the small towns where they're less likely to speak English, they're probably more warm and flexible and patient with you. And well, sign language and a visit. smile goes a long way. It really but, does. But uh, the, your first advice was very good. Learn those 10, 15 words yeah. that you need to French. Are, the French are very formal. Where would I find these magical uh, 10 to 20 words? You got them right here. Julie Sanvo, we're your tour. What words should we know when we cross the border so we don't get run out of town? Bonjour. And I always say to sing it, it's easier because bonjour is really hard to say. Hello. Bonjour. You say that everywhere you go, even if there's... Bonjour. The first thing you say is bonjour, even if you don't see anybody, and then that way you're covered. Mm-hmm. And of course, uh, au revoir, uh, merci. Thank you. Uh-huh. And you can si. add in a madame or a monsieur. We, always or... a madame, monsieur goes a long way there. In the United States, you step into a shop and you can ignore the person at the desk. But in France, I think it's that would be considered rude. Yeah, and it's a different exchange because in the United States, people are taught in a store to come out and seek you. Whereas mm-hmm. in France, when you go into a store, you say bonjour to them. That, that means I'm here and I would like you to help me. Yeah. And uh, don't forget, s'il vous plaît, s'il vous plaît, that's a big one. Okay, so there's please, thank you, hello, goodbye, the basics, the polite words. Dave, good luck on your trip. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Patrick Vidal and Julie Sonvo about France, and you are welcome to give us a ring. Our phone number is 877-333-7425. Mary's calling in from Edmonds in Washington. Mary, thanks for your call. Yeah, you're welcome. I'm glad to be part of the program. Yeah, do you have a comment or a question for Patrick or Julie? I'm going to uh, France next year. And I'm wanting to hear some suggestions on places to go. I've been there four times before, and I like Provence the most. But if there's some small town that's undiscovered or some part of France that most people don't go to that they should go to, I'd like to hear your thoughts. Well, that's interesting. Patrick and Julie both earn their living taking groups around France, and people know the, the top sites. 
Julie, you live in France uh, and you've taken people around. What's one place in France that you think Americans really should be more aware of? I think Brittany. <laughs> so I'm going to let Patrick answer the question because Brittany is the part that people don't go to because there's after the Loire Valley, then they head somewhere else. They head to Normandy or they head south and they should just keep going out to Brittany to experience the culture and the music. So Patrick, what's so good about Brittany? Uh, uh, it's, <laughs> it's just a different culture. The rest of France is Celtic culture. That's yeah. the only area of France which kept that. Most of the people who travel to France will go to the big names like like Paris originally, like Normandy, like Provence, and uh, and forget all those. I mean, France is way more than that. And every place you go, you'll find nice landscape and nice little villages, remote places, and uh, really enjoy that. And Patrick, one thing unique about France to me is all around the edge of France, you have regions that are flavored by the next country. Can you take us on a circular trip around France and talk about the regions bordering the other oh, countries? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's not even only border. It starts in, in Brittany with the Celtic culture. Like Ireland. Uh, yeah. I go north, I go to Normandy, which has a Norman Viking culture. Uh-huh. That's, that's where the culture comes from. That's where, that was the Viking Norman. coming in, the main from the north, Normandy. Mm-hmm. Then we go to the north. It's the place where they have very, very Flemish culture. It's the, you, ah. You'll find mussels and fries. Very, next very next to Belgium. Yeah, next to Belgium, okay. along the border. Then I follow the border down there and get to Alsace, which has got a very Germanic culture, which is speak a, a dialect, which is very, very close to German, but something in between French and, and German. This is a region where you could meet a, a man named Jacques Schmidt. Yeah, yeah. 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 <laughs> yeah. And that changes hands after each Absolutely, war. Consequently, yeah. you've got the mix of German and yeah. French. Okay. Then you go down to the Alps, to the Savoie, where the, the culture is very uh, Swiss on one side. Very, very close to the Swiss. You find the same chalet that in the Swiss Alps. Yeah, fondues and the same, same thing like that. Then you keep uh, going south and let's see, let's see, let's see. You get to Nice where you get very Italian because Nice was not French before the 1860s. So, so before 1860, Nice was part of the uh, Italian yeah. world, huh? Nice and all the Savoie region, all the place around the Lake, the lake Geneva was, yeah. uh, was Italian. Italian culture. It was not Italian, it was more complicated than that because Italy didn't exist. But then you've got all the uh, Occitanie, the old region Languedoc-Roussillon, which is very Spanish and Catalonia, like Barcelona culture. Yeah. And then we are coming from in the southwest of France where it's very, very Spanish as well. Very, very Spanish. So uh, Even we, some bullfights. Bullfights. Yeah, in uh, France. Yeah. yeah. Mm-hmm. And then uh, over by the Atlantic. We finished with the Basque country. Finished different with the Basque culture. Country. Yeah, yeah, different yeah. language. Different language altogether, different culture, different people. So you've got cultures from all around Europe, really, right in France. Absolutely. It's, very, right. it's, a, it's a melting, France is a melting pot. It is. Well, thanks Julie's, very much. It gives me some ideas. I think that's a lot of places to check out, and you can see the diversity of France. Hey, thanks so much, uh, Mary, and best wishes on your trip. Thank you. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We've been talking with Patrick Vidal and Julie Sanvo. Julie and Patrick, thanks for sharing your expertise with some of our travelers as they dream about France. I make pleasure, Rick. Yeah. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Rick Steves Europe in Edmonds, Washington by Tim Tatton with Sarah McCormick and Isaac Kaplan-Wolder. You can be a caller on the show and ask Rick and his guest a question or tell us about your travels. Simply send us your email address. There's a link on the radio page at ricksteves.com. That's how we can notify you of our next recording sessions and topics. We'll look for you again next week with more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, teaches the skills of smart travel. Along those same lines, Europe 101, History and Art for the Traveler, is a must-read for anyone who appreciates Europe's rich history and great art. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.